0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special guest, longtime friend, Megan O'Connor, Megan is the Entrepreneur-in-Residence at Kaplan uh, and has had a long a career in education and ed tech. Uh, Megan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So uh, by way of introduction, when you look back at sort of the arc of your sort of last decade uh, in the space, why don't you give a bit of background in terms of what's the thread you've kept pulling or what has drawn your, your interest uh, in terms of where you've chosen to, to get involved?
1: Well, I guess I could say that I've pretty much always been an ed tech entrepreneur. Um, I was definitely an ed tech entrepreneur before it was cool. I said this recently to a group of friends that, you know, we used to be, if you worked in education slash technology, you were the ugly stepsister of the rest of the tech world and they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, we're here talking with fintech people, not edtech people. And now based on the state of the world that we're at right now, edtech is at the front seat. So um, pretty interesting to see how that shift has happened. But definitely have always been working in how we can tech enable um, the distribution of education. I've worked predominantly in populations that haven't had easy access to education. So I worked at Pencil of Promise. We um, did quality education in the developing world. From there, I started my company Clark, which was all around democratizing access to tutoring, and then also the ability for educators to scale their own businesses. And now as an EIR at Kaplan and building a product that is really around how can we prepare larger populations of students for the work world, and by providing them access to information that you typically only get if you have a high-end internship or very expensive career counseling. So yeah, it's definitely about how we get wider pools, more diverse pools of students um, in the fold with some of the most cutting-edge things that are happening in education.
0: And, and give us a bit of background about how you've seen sort of the space evolve. If you were to say like, what are the big phases of ed tech in the last decade or, or even beyond, or, or why was it that it was sort of the ugly stepchild and, and now it's sort of hot? hot. Well, give us some sort of historical back, overview and then we'll get to present day.
1: Right. Well, I think that, you know, when uh, education became tech enabled, it first started within the classroom. So we were thinking about how can we create solutions that would help teachers, educators, people within this kind of bureaucratic institution um, advance the work that they were doing day to day. Um, obviously the education system, if you know it here in America is not a very fast moving one in terms of innovation. So there just wasn't a lot of excitement around like the type of technology that was being used. Then there was a second wave of really phenomenal products that started to come out that were either teacher first or student first. And that's when we started to see more and more people investing disposable income into educational technology products. And when they were user driven you could see great pockets of individuals starting to leverage them but then you could also slowly see the institutional education system start to adopt them uh, as well and so like class dojo is a great example of that duolingo is a good example of that too that like just used to be in the direct to consumer market but then we're eventually invited into the classroom as well and now um i mean basically the addressable market for online education is everyone based on the state of quarantine and what we're seeing um with COVID. And so now it's just really, how can we reimagine the entire system altogether for everything as big as like, does college matter? And should we go to, uh, you know, K through 12 schools that are part of our community if we're not physically going there and how will technology make that possible? Like all of this is up for grabs. So like definitely in a totally different type of ed tech renaissance right now.
0: Yeah. To build off that a couple ways I've seen it described are, sort of the, the first wave or initial wave was how do we make the existing school better? Like you said, you know, maybe like better math practice or student information systems. And then there's another wave of selling direct to consumer, but online content, you know, Khan Academy, Coursera, Udacity. And and that was interesting, but perhaps wasn't enough in that completion rates were, were pretty low. Uh, we thought the scarcity was content, but maybe it was social accountability. And so maybe the, there's this next wave that's combined sort of the best of online instruction uh, online instruction, sort of best of async and synchronous learning. And maybe the opportunity or the why now for that is that we just, we've better tooling, you know, mm-hmm. Lambda drive with sort of zoom and Slack, and then sort of maybe just, a, you know, a generation of parents that are now growing up with, with YouTube, Google and YouTube and sort of just more millennial expectations. Does that resonate?
1: It definitely resonates. And I think that, you know, the thing that we saw happen a couple of years ago when MOOCs and other types of like online curriculum became super popular is like people just were ecstatic by the fact that like you could learn anything online. That curriculum, that content, it had all been opened up to you. And what we're seeing now is that people are just overwhelmed with the amount of solutions that are out there, right? They have choice paralysis around what to pick. And so, you know, my prediction for what's next is basically like what's going to be the great curator? of one's education. Now that it's all there, now that it's all tech enabled, now that it's all available, how do you streamline what is, um, you know, the information you should consume, whatever it is within whatever topic it is that you want to learn. Um, and that is where we're going to see, I think, a whole nother set of tools develop soon. Uh,
0: what, what could those look like? Can you paint a little bit of a picture?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, the role of a teaching influencer is something that we've seen happen a little bit over the last couple of years. And there's certainly a lot of technology companies that have tried to create communities of like evangelical, you know, teachers that support their insert the blank technology. But what we haven't seen is like a lot of really clear pathway programs. So when you think about if you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer, pretty step-by-step step, uh, in terms of how you get there. Those those guides, those pathways have been created. If you want to learn something that's in the new economy, if you want to have a new economy skill, if you want a job that maybe has been created in the last 10 years, there's less of a, hey, you got to learn this first, then you need to learn this, then you couple it with this, and then before you know it, you have the end um, level of education you need to be successful within that topic. And so we're going to see more and more personalities pop up as like things that you'd follow in the education space, more and more tools that are going to drip to you the information you need when, so that way you don't become basically overwhelmed by all the different solutions that are available to you to learn one topic.
0: Yeah, and so let's, um. well, I, I want to address the questions you were bringing up earlier in terms of what, what does college look like now, or are people going to college in the same way, and what is K-12, what, what is in a sort of a post-COVID world, what, what do both, how do both college and K-12 evolve?
1: Um, I'll start with college because I'm thinking about that a lot right now. I mean, I will say I very much feel for the graduating college senior right now because they tried for the last four years to get good grades, to maybe perform well on AP tests, to get good test scores on the SATs. They applied for school and then before you knew it, like this whole system it started to crumble. What's happening right now this summer is that families are falling into a couple of different buckets. They're waiting first and foremost to find out if the campus that their student is enrolled in for the fall is gonna go remote or not. And if the answer is they're gonna go online, then parents and their students are evaluating, is it worth either the tuition dollars or the financial aid debt that they're going to take on in order to have remote learning, and like by and large, every statistic that came out over the course of the spring semester that was you know largely virtual because of um, quarantine is that students had a less than optimal experience uh, during spring semester learning remote. Much of that is obviously because schools weren't prepared to quickly flip to online learning. But a big portion of it is because it wasn't personalized and also because like the act of learning in person always outweighs the value of learning online. You will always have better cognitive outcomes in uh, an in-person setting versus a virtual one. So what's happening right now is families are like, is it worth it to send my kid to college if it's going to be online? Plus, coupled with the fact that they might be financially impacted by these times as well. So for the first time ever, people who thought there was really just one path forward after high school, it was do well and then go into college, are starting to look at alternative solutions. And those alternative solutions can be taking time off. They could be going to a boot camp, it could be taking credit bearing classes from many different institutions and cobbling together their own degree across a couple of different things. And that's kind of where the role of the curator comes in that I talked about earlier. Um, But the future of college, you know, fast forward this a little bit ways, I think that what we're going to see is that if we live in a remote learning world, which we can all agree we will moving forward, college brand names really only matter if you are a top top tier school. The ones that fall below that, that like would have been good in-person on-campus experiences for a student, that same like mid-tier brand name is not going to convert into a strong consumer base that's going to care to do so remotely. And so that's going to leave us with a customer that is shopping online for either an online university or for a solution in which they can pick up a little bit of information across a lot of different platforms. Um, I think we're also going to see students take time off in a way that we would have called them a gap year student before. And we've been like, oh, what a slacker or like, This is a student who wants to study abroad or take time to volunteer. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to pause and think intentionally about the way that they want to consume higher ed, um, which I think is a good thing because that means we'll have a more conscious consumer in the higher ed space. Who's going not to just kind of experiment, but rather to like get tangible skills. They know what major they want. They know what, you know, classes they're there for. Um, and I also think we're going to see a lot of consolidation in the higher ed space. Some of these smaller universities who are specialized in just a couple of things will have to partner up with other universities so they can have a more holistic online set of services to um, students. As for K through 12, same thing. Not a lot of people had a great optimal online experience during the fall semester. But the interesting thing about K through 12 is like, it's not only a problem for a student, but it's also a problem for a parent because That's when they go to work, when their kid is at school. And so K through 12 is also daycare. It's not just school. And so what does that mean? We're going to have to find a solution for putting students outside of the home so that way their parents can work for at least a percentage of the time. And so what I believe is going to happen in that space, and we're already starting to see it happen a little bit, is there's going to be just basically like – Informal homeschooling pods that will pop up that's families who have similar values around safety during covid We're willing to put 10 12 kids together and learn via either taking turns as parents or alongside private tutors. So I think you're gonna see homeschooling software just really rise quite a bit any marketplace that's good at matching. Um, specialized private tutors with families will be great organizational software that uh, helps you facilitate both payment and then also the structure of a informal school will become important. And yeah, I think we're going to, the community school is really going to have a hard time staying um, a permanent fixture in the family's life if it's going to be remote forever.
0: Yeah. And let's say we're having this conversation is exact. Podcast in in twenty twenty five or twenty thirty so five years from now, ten years from now, what do you think is go, is would be most different about the world of education or ed tech if, if we were having that conversation five years from now or ten years from now?
1: And five years from now, there's a vaccine and or we're not like yes. definitely so, of catching could, the virus. We could, we could, um, I think that the, we will have pressure test education in a way it never has been up until this point. And so people are going to be just like better customers of it. They know what they want out of it, the way that they do with direct-to-consumer goods. Like people will be less willing to just kind of blindly consume the cost um, that goes along with or to take on the cost that goes alongside consuming education and will do so in a way where um, – essentially they want to see much greater ROI. So I think that parents are only going to send their kids to colleges when it's a guarantee they can work afterwards. And so I think you know we noticed that with the boot camp rise, right? Like all these boot camps that popped up, let's say like a coding one for example, the value is part the brand name, but the value of that school is really job placements. Whereas a lot of other institutions kind of rest on their laurels being like we're this brand name and that's going to be good enough for you to get a job. Boot camps have known for a long time, no, we have to have, you know, sick recruiters to get these people placed in jobs and we need to help them find them. That is going to be a huge part of the higher ed experience. It's going to be necessary to solve for. I also think we're going to see students younger and younger pick a specialization. Like, I don't know about you, but I graduated from high school having no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. That's not going to be okay anymore because we're not going to be able to go to these generalist schools. We're not going to spend two years doing common core and then be like, okay, great. After I like accidentally took marine biology in this other class that I have no interest in, I now know who I want to be. And thus I'm going to double down on major courses. You're going to come out of high school knowing exactly what track you're on and be taking classes that give you tangible skills to unlock that career. What we're going to see die, in my opinion, is just like generic liberal arts courses that, yes, they make us interesting people, but they might not make us super employable the day we graduate.
0: Is is, is there going to be a bifurcation where it's a clear liberal arts school or clear sort of education to employment? Or is it going to be like, you know, 95% of it is education to employment?
1: I think if you want to stick around, you got to be thinking about how to get your students straight into employment. Liberal arts education generally might be a nice add on, but it's going to be, more of an extracurricular than it is going to be like a real basis of someone's core
0: education. Yeah. It is interesting how passionate people feel about that, about sort of, you know, know, just die hard about it. Let's say that we were starting a a fund. You were leading this fund and it was solely focused on, Mm -hmm. on ed tech and opportunities within uh, education. And it was for sort of, you know, the next five years, next 10 years, you know, multiple funds. What do you think would be the, the overall thesis of, of, of the fund? Uh, And and, and in terms of what would guide our approach, and then we we get to sort of specific subsectors and requests for startups.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, and this was actually an easy one to answer, it's my thesis would be products and companies that have found a way to personalize education at scale. And I come to this with a bit of a bias um, because so like I myself am dyslexic and I know that I'm only able to graduate, you know, with the good grades and be as successful as I am because I got some super specific education to me along the way, right? Like I wasn't like one of 30 in the back, just kind of following along. Then I went on to run a tutoring company and, you know, all of our success stories of students were around how they received one-on-one instruction and how that changed their trajectory within their understanding of subjects and just general learning. Um, We've also seen, based on kind of what's been happening lately with remote learning, just how much that lack of individualized care that parents saw their students get with their teacher in the classroom is why they're disliking this remote experience that they're going through right now. That doesn't mean we can't achieve it. It's just like, at the end of the day, personalized instruction is what works best because I think we all know no two people are the same, no two people learn the same, but we just haven't yet figured out all the tools to do so in a like scalable online
0: environment. Yeah. Do Do you think that we're going to see? Uh, you know, obviously, you had a you know a good acquisition acquisition to, to Noodle, but do you think we're going to see a unicorn company in, in the tutoring space? And if so, is it going to is it people? Is it like AI or something? like what, what is that? What does that company look like at sort of a unicorn or you know scale?
1: It's a good question. Um, I think that it's going to be. It's not going to be AI right now. That's for sure, because it's, we're no longer solving for students in the tutoring environment like I can't understand how to do this type of math problem. We're now solving for like I need support and just like learning an entire concept because it's hard to do in the outside of the classroom. So I think that if we're going to see this product, it's probably something that's like a, an organizational tool that maps out the structure, the pace by which a student progresses through a pathway tool, if you will. Um, so it's probably not too dissimilar from like all of the great, you know, work management software that has popped up in our world. And like, you know, what is Asana for somebody who's learning through a different topic and how might a practitioner, you know, log into the back end of that to
0: nudge that student along. Yeah. I, uh, I want to sort of, before getting into different subsectors, just sort of put them all on, on the table. Um, so I'll, I'll name them and then add any ones that, that I missed. So just starting from the bottom, I guess there's there's, there's daycare, there's homeschool, there's K through twelve alternatives, there's uh, university alternatives, there's sort of the whole boot camp industry or, or stuff that helps you get to uh, you know um, to job job training. Um, and then there's you know businesses that help um, you know sort of schools run better uh, at every level of the stack sort of, yeah, like tutoring outside of, you know, or continuous ed- education um, outside of the traditional education system. What what subsectors am I missing?
1: Um, I think workforce development. So, you know, a third of the teaching workforce in the U.S. is over the age of 50. Um, they didn't grow up as tech-enabled teachers. That doesn't mean they can't be them. It just means they haven't, you know, information learning management systems weren't native to the, you know, uh started their career. And so I think getting, and that's why people are having bad experiences right now with remote learning is because again, a third of the, and I don't mean to insinuate just because you're over 50, you can't do this. I'm just saying, um, based on socialization at a certain stage, you know, we should be spending as much time, energy, and building as many products as possible to make sure that educators can utilize all of the different online tools available to them. I mean, think about how hard it must be be, to be a teacher. You have to both be really good at a topic, you have to have created the curriculum for it, and you have to figure out how to like have engaged users with it through a technology platform. Like That's basically three jobs. Yeah. Um, and so that third piece, I think, can be both taught to teachers, but also simplified by better products.
0: Yeah. Just to go through some of the spaces, do you think homeschool could ever be you know, I think right now it's 3% of the population. Could it ever be like 15% or 20% or h- how bullish are you on homeschool?
1: Absolutely. I think I'm, I wasn't before now and watching the ways in which families have self-organized um, just makes it clear that there's going to be a market. Like the users are already doing this without us. They're doing it in Excel right now. Yes. And um, you know, it matches user behavior. We're seeing across a couple different demographics. Like we have families that are now, you know, quarantining together. We have younger people who are in shared houses quarantining remotely together. Like people are not necessarily ready to integrate into mainstream big cities um, or go back to their day-to-day lives and communities and probably won't be for a while, but that doesn't mean that they don't want to have quality education for their kids. So I think that homeschooling is the absolute solution to that scenario. And I think once families go through, let's say like maybe one school year of homeschooling, they'll realize like how tailored it is to their students' own needs. They'll be like, Wow. This is actually my kids learning a lot faster than I realized they were but good.
0: Yeah, is cloud powered schools a thing? I.e., are there going to be sort of alternatives to K through 12 that just sort of compete uh, head on that you think could be venture scale? And I guess a broader question is, of your portfolio, how much do you expect to be outside of the existing system versus helping the existing system run better?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I always, my thesis for this, um, you know, fantasy firm that we have together, it will always be to first prioritize investing outside of the system, much quicker sales cycle, like pretty much no brainer there. Um, I do think that, first of all, legislation would have to change in order for us to create like a cloud school where it'd be okay for families not to opt into their community school and they could instead opt into this other system things like standardized testing, etc., would still have to exist. But yes, absolutely. Like there could a hundred percent, if we could move through the legislation, there is definitely a world in which like, there's these really large, you know, unicorn style, domestic virtual schools. Um, and kids could start to learn with, you know, students everywhere across all the topics.
0: How about at the university sort of alternative or supplement? Like, how do you think about you know, like Lambda versus Guild versus Trilogy, or just like what types of approaches do you think are are most interesting or would you be most interested to invest in?
1: Yeah, um, so, you know, I would... I'm personally would want to do a lot more investment in the alternative higher ed. I think they've had kind of slow growth up until now. And it's because the traditional higher ed system still had a lot of market share. This pandemic is the first time we have really pressure tested the value of traditional higher ed. And if done right, I think this is a great opportunity for the alternative higher ed university and or bootcamp to like make a big name for themselves and create a lot more value in the market. You know, all universities are going to have to flip to online solutions. They're going to want to syndicate as many of their courses as possible. Like up until now, I would have said something like a trilogy it had pretty much saturated the market, but now we're going to see a lot of universities try to do the trilogy model. Uh, again, I only think people are going to subscribe to those universities if the brand name matters. So I think we'll see a spike and then pretty much an evening out there. And what was the last company that you mentioned?
0: Guild yep, Education.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, like employee development. Yeah. The thing with those are like their inner company. Right. Like so they're helping people move up the internal ladder um, that will stay the same. It'll, it will mirror the size of different workforces. Honestly, um, the only thing that I can forecast is that more entry level employees will enter their first job without a traditional college degree. And so Guild and the other people who do employee education just need to be prepared for like a more diverse entry level employee joining them.
0: it's interesting. I've always wondered why Facebook or Google or Microsoft or or Amazon, companies that are hiring mass amount of -hmm. of, of people don't have their own sort of like university. Eric,
1: I do too. This is literally like what I want my life's work to be because it makes no sense. They know exactly what skills are necessary for people to be employable. And we have an underemployment and unemployment problem in this country. So why aren't we matching these two things together and teaching the people who don't make enough or don't have a job or underemployed with the skills they need to succeed in the jobs that are open. Like there is a ridiculous, I can't remember what the number is off the top of my head, but it would shock you the number of open entry level jobs in America today.
0: Yeah. And so do you think the opportunity is to create like a white label, you know, uh, university as, as a service basically for, for these companies?
1: Yeah, I definitely think it is. And the, that has to be coupled also with like a really strong credentialing system because yep. the, the fear is if I get the Facebook, let's say degree, Um, that I only know how to work at Facebook and that if I reach, let's say like a managerial like um, ceiling there, I can't transfer over to another company. Like they have me for life because I only know the Facebook way in order for this to be something that people um, opt into at mass. Like you would have to know that like, if you reached a certain level of employment at Facebook, that means I've collected these credentials and those credentials equal getting this type of job at the, sales forces of the world. So essentially a leveling and badging, IE credentialing system that makes it possible for people to feel safe opting into a corporate university.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, I I wonder, and not that it has to be either or, but is there gonna be sort of like a Lambda school for Lambda for sales, Lambda for BD, Lambda for growth, Lambda for, you know, just tons of different, will all all those be independent companies? Will they be Mm -hmm. a bundle, you know, outside of tech, obviously, nursing, I mean, there's a bunch of different categories. Or will that be more like company specific, like you go to Facebook University, now you understand, you know, growth or, or, you know, or or sales or, or something in a way that, you know, can, can transfer over.
1: Yeah, I think that there'll be some like core technical things that will always stay like the, you know, the Lamp school for sales or engineering, et cetera. But I think that the vast majority will be uh, a institution, an educational institution, just white labeling their process and their ability to educate students with the curriculum that's dictated to them by a major corporation. Um, and I actually do think that's the best way to do it because that company knows what technology is changing, knows what innovation is changing, knows what they need their employees to know today that they didn't need their employees to know tomorrow. So like, that's the way that you can get the most like highly talented day one, you know, employee you possibly could is if you're that knowledge from the beginning of their education.
0: Totally. Over the last decade, I think VCs have had various different phases where they've invested in sort of bootcamp businesses that became good businesses, but didn't become sort of venture scale. Maybe mm-hmm. because there just wasn't a winner-take-all dynamic, and and maybe Lambda's the closest thing to it, at least in, in, in soft, but it's, in tech, but it's still unproven whether they can really expand yeah. you know, uh, into different tech positions, let alone beyond tech into like nursing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just wondering, is it? Do you have a take on whether it'd be winner-take-all or whether it'll be you know more fragmented?
1: I think that it just depends how many skills we're controlling for for entry-level jobs like you know the the thing is there wasn't a lot that we saw the boot camps trying to tackle in terms of profession right we saw data science we saw sales start to become emergent but every type of engineering obviously is one like if we can figure out how to address that model with all the other types of um, entry-level jobs and if we can even apply it to you know the blue-collar jobs of the world and get more into a vocational style education I think like that's what makes it exciting venture backable scalable Um, and also I think the reason, like I said earlier, that those schools haven't had their moment yet is because they were still competing with traditional higher ed, like market share for traditional higher ed is going to go down now. And like the most important thing people are going to be optimizing for is jobs. So I think it's like whoever gets their graduates into the best jobs is who wins, whatever type of school they are.
0: Are ISAs overhyped? Are they like totally the future of student financing? Uh, student finance? How do you think about financing?
1: Um, well, I think that regardless, it's just been every time we've had a new president, they've said something different about student loan forgiveness. I am someone who has, with bated breath, watched what would happen, and you know, when Trump was like, "Forget it, we might get rid of this," I was like, "Oh, good! I'm so glad I filled out the paperwork for the last eight years." So, I would say it's still volatile. Um, ISAs, yes, I think, is a extraordinarily smart way to think about saving because we don't because no one wants to take on student debt in the way that they would blindly would before. Um, are they hundred percent of the future? I don't know, because I think we're going to see too many new emergent education institutions be the bigger players in higher
0: ed. And like, they probably don't come with traditional financing options. Yeah. What's Kaplan's uh, superpower as, as a company?
1: That's a good question. I mean, quality educators, first of all, like, uh, Having previously spent some time in marketplaces where, yes, there are definitely gems on there, but there's also like critical mass, um, like just consistently Kaplan has across the board, just phenomenal educators. Um, they've also authored some of the most cutting edge curriculum in you know the different spaces and they do a ton in the professional space that is maybe lesser known about like how to become a nurse, how to become a speech pathologist, how to become a CPA, like all of that has been um Uh, Authored by them natively. And then I think the other thing is like providing like consistent outcomes. You know, whenever they, four out of five doctors in the U.S. studied with Kaplan. Um, And so very consistently, if you want to be pre-med and you want to succeed, like you know that if you go through this pathway of learning with Kaplan, like you have a positive outcome.
0: Yeah. Remember Joel Klein's company, Amplify? uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, obviously, Joel's an awesome, you know, person and entrepreneur. What, what do you think the lesson was from from that company, or why didn't that sort of achieve its, you know, astronomical, um, you know, uh, expectations?
1: You know, it's a good question. And did they fully close? Like, what ended up happening
0: there? I I just uh, News Corp sells Amplified to Joel. Cl- well, that no, he bought it in 2015. Yeah. I don't know. What, maybe it's, maybe it's still going. I, I guess I'm curious about just about the broader space in, in, in general, if anyone is a, a big winner. Like, does, does Kaplan consider them a competitor in his perspective? Or
1: No, Kaplan would not consider them um, a competitor. I think that, you know... Um How would I describe it? I would say that I think what they tried to do is create like um, more of a professional community rather than like a certification system. And I think that there are just so many professional um, jobs out there that require a certain test you have to perform well in, a certain certification you have to secure. Um, I think that they were looking more to like almost curate maybe like a, a LinkedIn community around some of these different jobs versus necessarily get people like through a pathway program.
0: What is the future uh, of assessment and how do you expect assessment to evolve?
1: I think assessment is going to go away in a really meaningful way. So I think for the first time ever, we're looking at professional skills and your ability to prove that you have them be more important than an SAT score. And so, you know, everyone said like, Oh, the reason you still take the SATs is not because it, you know, the answers to all those questions, but it shows that, you know, these certain things like critical thinking, ability to, you know, succeed under pressure, stuff like that. And I think people now are like, well, what if we just measured if they had those things and we didn't have to have the stupid test in the way? Like, what if we just could test for Ability to work in teams, effective communication, critical thinking, um, decision-making, things like that. Um, And so I think the future of assessment is going to probably be around about 10 core professional skills. Um, There's probably about, there are about 10 that people um, definitely measure for in the recruitment space and that they're also starting to create, we're creating at Kaplan um, programs around. But the future of assessment will definitely be proving that you have skills,
0: not scores. Yeah. So here's my sort of outsider assessment and feel free to comment on it or or not comment on it. So my outsider assessment is that IQ is basically people have problems with IQ, (laughs) IQ testing and sort of SAT served. And there are a couple other variations of it served as like a more acceptable way to do like something similar, which is sort of measure aptitude. And uh, and getting into college was basically um, you know, SAT help, helped you do that and such it was a way to sort of filter for like who, who had really high aptitude but not in a sort of a politically incorrect way. And now that SAT is potentially under threat itself, now sort of um, if you're an employer, you're not exactly sure what it means to like go to Berkeley or what it means to, you know, like attend this this university if if that, you know, because grades can be so inflated whereas SAT is sort of harder to game. Yeah. Is that incorrect? And uh, regardless, how do you, do you think a college is that is that a problem college is gonna have in, in that they just provide less signal, or, or how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think you know another way of saying what you're getting at is like SATs at least were like equal across all different socioeconomic yes. backgrounds, right? Like we all took the same test, whereas like an A at one school could mean something totally different from an A at a different school. So I totally get what you're saying there. I think that until there becomes an assessment tool that we have all become bought into that's around assessing you know, these skills that I was talking about, what universities will have to do is care less about GPAs and more around like demonstrated skills. Like how can a student demonstrate that they have these things? That might mean like more like conversations in order to get into college. It might mean more like reporting. Um, this is something we're seeing with a new program that we're doing at Kaplan. Like we're reporting people's, um, Admissions essays because some people are much better at talking than they are at writing I think that we're gonna see universities get a lot more creative in terms of how they analyze like people's um, Proficiency in certain areas, and I bet you you know, I'm just thinking about this for the first time Big companies have gotten so good at this right because you could apply to a job and it could say on your resume I was an engineer at this company, but like what does that mean you actually know how to do we do things like pairing We have series of questions that really help you understand like does this person have the raw talent or not I'm sure that uh, universities will take a page out of the recruitment books and figure out how to, you know, their own way in an equitable way. Totally. Uh, analyze if people have the skills they say they do.
0: Let's talk about some of the uh, bigger, sort of more innovative companies in, in ed tech today. So there's, uh, there's Chegg, there's VIP Kid, there, uh, well, and you just named some other, obviously obviously Kaplan for, for a long time has been innovative. Well, what do you talk about some other sort of, you know, ed tech unicorns or, or companies that, they, are sort of innovative in the space.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you just named a lot of some of my favorite ones. Um, you know, we all the information learning management systems, you know, Blackboard, Canvas, etc. Um, Clever, basically the marketplace by which you can find different solutions. Um, we have the teacher engagement and parent engagement tools, which I'm a big fan of, um, ClassDojo and Remind. Um, so those are the ones where you see, like, the largest mass adoption. Quizlet, however, is probably my favorite one, and Quizlet is is growing like hotcakes. And you know, this is the first time ever that kids like to basically do like digital flashcards and practice tests yeah. uh, and they opt into it. Like it feels like playing a video game to them. Um, and so I am always shocked by the amount of time that kids will put into their screen time on with Quizlet.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's always seemed obvious to me that there's gonna be sort of two things. One is sort of like a Netflix for Like, why can't we just get Morgan Freeman out know the best actors to just teach math or whatever, or whatever it is, may make it fun. Uh, or may, make it like that's fun to watch. Doing. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Ma- makes sense. And, and masterclass in their own way, I guess. But then, uh, uh, and then also, yeah, make, like get the best video game designers in the world and like you know learning math, you know, with like fighting dragons or something. I mean, so like people want to make it fun, right?
1: Well, and the future of like asynchronous online education is going to have to go in that direction because kids are growing up in just like such a cinematic world where like they're able. Yeah video games that look like unbelievable so if you yeah. want to capture a kid's attention like you have to compete with the level of you know just beautiful cinema that they're seeing in their
0: entertainment totally. as someone who spent thousands of hours playing like you know mario kart and others yeah. <laughs> great if i picked up some other skills along the way
1: exactly our <laughs> expectations were set low in terms of how good video games <laughs> look. Yeah,
0: totally i, I asked that sort of question just to segue the next question which is, which is sort of, i'll ask it in two ways one is what is our sort of Funds requests for startups in terms of if, if you imagine our sort of first mm-hmm. five, first ten investments. What are the types of companies that we look? We really want to see, um, or that we really want to invest in, or that we think will be big. And another way of asking it is like we just named some of the companies that are really big today. Yeah. If we're doing this, you know, ten years from now or eight years from now, what are the companies that don't yet exist that we will be? And maybe it's like a homeschooling company, or maybe it's like a you know college alternative that does this, this, and that. Or like, what are sort of your you know specific requests for startups in that way, or things that you? you know, want to fund someday or think will be big.
1: I mean, the quick, easy ones, the ones we've already talked about are a company that can easily make, you know, corporate you exist in a white label fashion. Um, I think that uh, homeschooling platforms are going to be an incredibly massive one because we're going to have to match families. We're going to have to create um, tools for the supply side. We're going to have to create tools for the demand side. And we're also going to have to create, you know, what happens if it all has to be done virtually tools as well. So I think those two are going to be big. Um, In terms of like if you were investing in the seed stage, like startups today, like the North Star metric I would be looking at would be just student and Engagement because digital fatigue is so real right now, and that's a big part of the problem that most individuals are having um, while trying to learn remotely. And so, whatever tools can find a way to fit into a student's life in a way that doesn't um, tire them out the way that things are tiring them out now. And then, like I said earlier, personalization like, how can you really create a curated experience for one user, which will then uh, equate to long retention? Like, those are the things um, that I would optimize for there. Um, And then in terms of like the companies that are outside of these spaces and that don't yet exist that I would be interested in, you know, how might we get a wider population of educators into the remote learning network? Like VIP Kids, yes, did a really wonderful job of getting domestic-based teachers to hourly work for um, English language learning to predominantly students in uh, Asia, but what I'm what we we need right now in America is much richer education. We don't need an hour of on-demand English learning. We need a how can I, as an unemployed ex, opt into an educational system and teach you know the entire arc of a subject to a student, a group of students, a, a large online community, et cetera. Like we've only been able to figure out the supply side of getting educators into online education. Marketplaces in like really superficial ways, not in like deeply enriching ways. Like that's the company I'd like to see built.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. What um just a few a few minutes left in, in closing. What are the uh, predictions you have for the future that we we haven't yet got to? Obviously, we've covered a tremendous amount of ground, but anything come to mind that we that you're excited about or, or think might happen or might not happen that we we haven't yet covered in, in education or ed tech. Well,
1: or as I basically bashed on liberal arts schools and like the in-person college experience. Um, you know, obviously a big part of college that is awesome is making friends, living in the dorms, doing extracurriculars on campus, joining communities, joining, it. uh, it's all gone now. And so, uh, you know, it's too bad Facebook already exists and isn't tied to universities anymore. but I do think that there needs to be just, social networks for these communities and they maybe don't need to be tied to one geographical location. But at the end of the day, like all the soft skills that you get out of going to in-person education have to be solved for. Otherwise we're all going to end up accidentally being robots who are really smart at a topic, but like bad at socializing and don't know how to interact with others, et cetera. Um, so I, and students will miss that. I know, you know, we've watched companies try to figure out how to create community with their remote workforces. Like we have to do that in learning environments now too.
0: Yeah. My, my prediction is, um, or one thing I'm excited about and maybe you want to build at some point is, is peer to peer credentialing. Um, mm-hmm. I think that if you were to tell me, you know, the, the five people under 23 or 25 that you think have the most potential, I, I would certainly value that more than a Harvard degree. Um, and, and, and not just you, but anyone in our peer group that we, that we really respect. And right now that information is just inside of our heads and, you know, it could be worth a, a lot of money to that person. I would hire that person or, you know, from that person. And yet Harvard or sort of these institutions sort of have a global monopoly on credentialing where, you know, peer to peer credentialing, I feel like if it could be unlocked could, um, could really be powerful.
1: I totally agree with you. And in a weird way, like LinkedIn has a feature that's supposed to solve for that, right? Like you're supposed to get from your, your peers that they can certify you or endorse you on these certain skills. Like being able to do that in a much better way would be phenomenal. I feel like there's so many features within LinkedIn that like weren't thought of nearly enough. And if like ripped out of that platform or like yeah. a lot more energy was put into them would solve for a ton of the things that we talk about.
0: Totally. Totally. Have you heard of the Bloom Sigma problem? I I think it's basically the idea that one-to-one teaching is is just so much more effective than than one to 30 and how can we use technology? Well, this is extrapolating out. How can we use technology to get this was sort of how we started the conversation. How do we personalize learning? Yeah,
1: Yeah, it it is. One-on-one instruction will always be the best and especially for any person that has a learning disability, who has a confidence problem, who simply has fallen behind just slightly like it's so necessary. Yeah, the the company that figures that out wins
0: for sure. Awesome. That's a perfect place to wrap. My guest today has been Megan O'Connor. Megan, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. Uh, Highly recommend people follow Megan on Twitter. Uh, And uh, Megan, it's been great.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.